When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply section of socks directs the SEC to adopt rules about the duties that corporate lawyers should have and should follow if they they believe that there might be misconduct at their company. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where with my good friend and colleague Matt Kelly, we take a deep dive into a compliance topic. This episode, we take a look at a very interesting speech by SEC Commissioner Allison Heron Lee, where she says that lawyers are gatekeepers with duties to a broader set of clients than simply corporate shareholders or those who might sign their checks and wants to expand the obligations of lawyers to report misconduct and protect additional stakeholders. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we're going to take up a topic near and dear to my heart, lawyers. And uh, we're debating on whether to call this the SEC, uh, <clears throat> holding lawyers more accountable, or just go directly to Shakespeare with kill the lawyers. But Matt, uh, first of all, welcome. And what has Allison Heron Lee given us to pontificate on this week? Well, Tom, this is interesting. So SEC Commissioner Allison Heron Lee, a Democratic appointee, she gave a speech last Friday where she talked about Section 307 of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Now, I have to admit, uh, I have not had Section 307 of SOX on my radar screen for many, many years. Uh, but basically, that section of SOX directs the SEC to adopt rules about the duties that corporate lawyers should have and should follow if they believe that they are going to their they believe that there might be misconduct at their company. And currently, Section 307 says if a corporate lawyer finds misconduct, they are supposed to report it up the chain of command. Uh, but Miss Lee gave this very wide-ranging speech saying, no, 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 we should interpret Section 307 much more broadly to adopt new rules, and she did a call for the SEC to adopt new rules that would place more of a duty on corporate lawyers to think about the advice they are giving senior executives about materiality and disclosure in particular, but basically to really give the SEC more of a mechanism to hold corporate lawyers accountable for bad advice that they might give to their clients. The, the I guess, the cliched statement about, well, this isn't exactly ethical, but yes, it is legal, so sure, we can do it. She, I think she wants to adopt new rules that would attack that bad habit of lawyers, and then the SEC could conceivably hold corporate lawyers more accountable. Exactly how accountable, what would the punishment be, we don't know, that's not a rule yet, but it was a very intriguing flag that uh, Miss Lee planted when she was speaking on Friday. I read this uh, with some real interest, as you might guess, Matt, and 
the first thing that really struck me was the expansion of the number of parties' interests that a lawyer must take into account. So one of the first things you're taught, uh, if not in law school, uh, in private practice is you have one duty of loyalty, and that duty of loyalty is to your client. But what Ms. Lee here wants to do is expand that into the interests identified by the Business Roundtable on the statement on the purpose of a corporation to a variety of stakeholders. Uh, One of the stakeholders is the shareholders of a corporation. Uh, One are the employees. Uh, Another is um, third parties. Another is localities. Another might be senior executives. And so uh, we could see, or at least she's calling for something that would, I think, fundamentally change the way uh, lawyers provide advice and the protection around that advice. The, if we're going to move to a system that uh, lawyers are not to advise what is legal, but what is ethical, that's also going to require a major change of the way probably legal educations are delivered, because that's certainly not a part of a le- legal education either. So uh, I got lots more to say, so I'll stop there and uh, maybe get your comments on that part, Matt. I would tailor it just a bit from what you said. Um, I I think that Miss Lee and and me personally and most people would agree that a lawyer's first duty is to the client, but the word client is the key word there. And I think that there are still too many lawyers out there who would interpret the client as the person who signs my paycheck. And it is therefore going to be the CEO or perhaps the general counsel who is signing my paycheck. So I have to work for that person. And she did take uh, take issue with what she described as can-do lawyering that you might see where the client, the person signing your paycheck says, I want to do this. And so you then, the lawyer, figure out the way that says, okay, then here is our legal basis to be able to do this. That's different than your client being the company and shareholders and investors who might be looking to make a decision on investing in your company, where they are not necessarily interested in these two clever by half schemes that might technically be legal, but still don't look like they're a reasonable position for somebody to take uh, if you're trying to represent the whole company or shareholders. Um she gave an example. Let me see if I could find it out. Um, we have seen, she gave a great example of, uh, say, when lawyers fail as gatekeepers, when they provide goal-directed reasoning to public companies on critical issues like materiality, there is a broader interest at stake. Investors in financial markets can be harmed through false or misleading disclosure, and lawyers are frequently involved in disclosure decisions. So I think she's getting at when the person signing your paycheck says, I only want to disclose this and not the other stuff. Please find a legal basis for me to do it. And then you do it. That's not the same as the lawyer thinking, well, what is in the best interests of the whole company and shareholders and investors? What should they know? And therefore, let's disclose those things. That's the the issue that she's trying to get at here. 
And I certainly understand that issue. Uh, the What it would do is if you have to take into account the interest of the greater financial markets, it really expands out those to whom you owe a duty of loyalty. And if you owe a duty of loyalty to those people, if you violate that duty of loyalties, uh, you can be held accountable to that, whether that's a regulatory accountable or whether that's a civil action accountable. The um, uh, number of potential stakeholders that you would then have to determine, well, which interest is the more important interest if you have multiple interests? What if those interests are not the same? Certainly, you can have employees' interests being different than financial markets' uh, interests, uh, different than uh, suppliers' or other third parties' interests, and even different uh, localities' interests. And then the overall concept, though, Matt, of are lawyers gatekeepers, or should they be gatekeepers? And if they are gatekeepers, do we need to hold them to a different standard that uh, than we do lawyers now. And I, uh, I recognize that's a theme running throughout this um, speech and, and your blog post as well. And we're going to link to the blog post because everyone needs to read this at this point. Uh, if lawyers are gatekeepers, <coughs> who is their duty to report to? Is their duty to report to the general counsel? Is their duty to report to the board of directors, or is their duty to report to a regulator if they see something uh, that violates uh, any of the precepts that uh, Commissioner Lee has uh, laid out? Well, I think that we should really seize on that word gatekeepers and try and figure out what it should mean and apply here. Um, This is not the first time that the regulatory world has talked about the heightened duties that gatekeepers have. And when you look at the various anti-corruption speeches that have been made by others in the Biden administration, in the Justice Department, and in the SEC and whatnot, uh, they include lawyers, they include auditors, they frankly, I think, would probably include compliance officers and others who have a duty to think just beyond my immediate supervisor and the person who signs my paycheck. Um, If you want to have a good counterexample, so external auditors, uh, are they gatekeepers? Yes, they are. And actually, SOX Section 307 also applies to auditors where the PCAOB has adopted other rules for external auditors and what they should be doing when they come across potential bad acts or material violations of securities law with their clients. Now, Their clients are literally the ones who sign their paychecks, but their clients aren't their only, um, I I guess, they don't have a duty just to that client. They have a duty to the investors who might read the auditor's report. And Lee is trying to get to what would a lawyer analog of that look like? Um, And we can talk a bit about the language of Section 307, which I think is worth doing, Although, before we get to that, I should be clear, she didn't specifically say, we need to adopt a rule that specifically gives us the ability to charge lawyers if they give bad advice. She said that, you know, what might a rule under 307 look like that she wants to offer, you know, we might offer greater detail involving a lawyer's obligation to a corporate client, including more specifically how their advice must reflect the interests of the corporation and its shareholders rather than the executives who hire them. That that was Lee's words. 
So what does that exactly mean as a rule? What would that rule look like? How would you then apply it in an enforcement setting? You know, those are steps 8, 9, 10, and 12 when we're still stuck on what are steps 1 and 2. But she's got a valid reason to say, you know, why don't we look at steps 1 and 2? You know, the language of Section 307 is is pretty clear that if the SEC wanted, yeah, they could try and do something along these lines. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor and be right back. So the next area I'd like to turn to, Matt, is um, how do we actually make this change? Say the SEC does institute some change and lawyers are either seen as gatekeepers or they are required to take uh, into account a broader uh, group of potential clients, whoever those clients are defined to be. Uh, That then but could, could become antithetical to your obligation as a lawyer in the, in the state that you practice uh, to provide your advice to one client, uh, i.e. the one who signed your paycheck, the one who hired you, uh, or the shareholders of a corporation if you're an in-house corporate lawyer, uh, potentially subjecting a lawyer to state disciplinary proceedings. So um, that's kind of one area that gives me concern. But on a broader um, reflection, the American Bar Association has been as antithetical to anything close to this as any other organization could be. Uh, In the 90s, they tried, there was an attempt to have lawyers required to report misconduct up to internally to a corporation, and the ABA stopped that. Uh, the ABA for 15 years fought any change in money laundering or reporting requirements on client trust funds. And um, frankly, 307, although it was passed, there was never any uh, enacting um, regulatory uh, comment around it, largely because the ABA was able to squash that, even though Sarbanes-Oxley was passed in the wake of Enron and WorldCom. So I see a lot of practical problems here, and if the SEC is going to expand out the notion of who lawyers' clients are defined as, uh, is it going to be carved out to your SEC work only? Um, Any thoughts on any of that? Um, Well, you know, those are all very valid questions, and Lee did touch on them, and for example, Uh, some of the tensions that might emerge from whatever the SEC might do versus state bar rules. Yes, that's valid. That's true. Uh, But on the other hand, I think that, you know, we really need to drill down to this business of the client. And like I said, you know, the client is the client, the person who signs your paycheck or is the client the company? And even if you want to say the client is the person who signs your paycheck, well, look, the CEO might sign the paycheck, but it's not the CEO's money. It's the company's money. The company is the one that's paying you. So the company is the client. Well, who is the company? Ultimately, the company is the shareholders, right? And you know, we can keep peeling away at that for quite some time. Um, so I do think that there are some concerns there. On the other hand, 
I'll, I'll go back to uh, talking about Section 307 of SOX, where the actual statute says that the SEC has to adopt rules requiring, quote, minimum standards of professional conduct for attorneys appearing and practicing before the commission in any way in the representation of issuers, close quote. So what is important there is now the SEC did adopt a rule in 2003. It's never been enforced. Um, that says, yes, if you come across a material violation of securities law, you're supposed to report it up the chain of command. doesn't say that you have to report it out to maybe the SEC, although you can. Um, but Lee zeroed in on the point that the text says rules, plural. So you can have more than one rule about what good corporate conduct or corporate lawyer conduct would be. And the rules shall be adopted, quote, in the public interest and for the protection of investors, quote, close quote. It doesn't say in the public interest and for your client, the one who's signing your paycheck or anything like that. All of this is for the public interest and the protection of investors. So that could be your, if you're the SEC, your rationale for adopting more expansive rules. Um, now, I still see a whole bunch of potential uh headaches around this. And Tom, I'll give you one right off the top of my head. I know a lot of chief compliance officers might wonder if this gets to compliance officer liability. Will you have new reporting duties? How am I going to make this work if I'm reporting the legal? I can wave all of that away. What if you're not a lawyer? Because Section 307 talks about professional conduct for attorneys, period. And I mean, it also, there's a different part of it that talks about auditors, but there are chief compliance officers out there who are not attorneys and they're not CPAs. So they're not regulated by the PCAOB and they're not therefore regulated by Section 307. So what are their duties? Or if I let my bar license lapse and I'm no longer a lawyer, do I now evade any sort of th Section 307 duties that Commissioner Lee might decide to have the commission put upon me or anything like that? I don't know what the answer is to it, but she's not wrong to say that there are still plenty of opportunities for can-do lawyering where really you're coming up with any attenuated, stretched out legal rationale for what your boss wants you to do, and you're not necessarily taking into account what's in the best interest of the public, of investor protection, of shareholders, or of the company. And the company is your client. It is not the guy who's signing your paycheck or the woman signing your paycheck. They're just the ones that their signature authorizes company money to go into your bank account. But it ain't their money that's going into your account. It's the company's money. So I see where she's coming from. Uh, actually, I read that and uh, I took it about 10 paces past where you took it, Matt. I would say this has nothing to do with CCOs. Sure. Uh, CCOs do not practice law. They may hold a law license. That has zero applicability in the legal standing world. Uh, they can't, uh, they don't get attorney-client privilege. Uh, they don't get attorney work product. If you're a CCO, you're a compliance officer. Doesn't matter whether you hold a law license, whether you paid up your bar dues or not. So uh, my argument would be this has no applicability to CCOs, uh, lawyer or not, uh, because you're not practicing law. So... Um, I didn't see that really uh, as too much of an issue. Uh, I guess, Matt, the one theme, if I could try to get that across, if 
my scattershot thoughts here is this is a huge change for lawyers. And it doesn't mean it's bad change, uh, but understand that a lot is going to have to happen to make this change. And if we make this change, there's going to be a lot of consequences, both intended and unintended. And if we make the decision to do this, uh, it's going to provide kind of a new way to represent or a new requirement to represent a variety of clients. And that's just not the way people of my generation and going forward have been taught and uh, how we are governed by our our local state bars or by the American Bar Association to the extent they provide uh, oversight and guidance on governing lawyers. So um, from that perspective, we should certainly have this debate. Uh, We've had legal abuses in the past, exactly as she's detailed of not whether we can do it, but should should we do it? And uh, I think that's an appropriate debate for us to have going forward. Well, a couple of thoughts. First, I am not entirely sure I agree with your point that this has no applicability to chief compliance officers. There, I mean, you could imagine there's somebody who is a deputy general counsel and chief compliance officer. That is a common title. So are they part of the legal department, but they're not practicing law? I mean, I also see where you're going with your argument. And I, as I've said before, I, I would look forward to the fact pattern that lets us figure this out in more practical context. But I would not necessarily bet that this has no relevance to compliance officers uh, plus, just you know, generally, I think compliance officers, many of whom are lawyers who probably do want to be a general counsel someday, probably do have some significant interest in this, whether it affects them or not. Um, but then, you know, my other question is still: so, are we for real that the SEC is going to do this? Because I see where Lee is planting a flag. She's probably going to get a lot of good governance people to rally around it because it's not necessarily a wrong idea on the face of it. You know, I'm in favor of lawyers thinking ethically. Um, But is this now going to wind up on the SEC's rulemaking agenda? It's not currently, if you look at the rulemaking agenda. On the other hand, this was a long, detailed, substantive speech on a big issue I can't imagine Lee came up with that just because she had a lack of anything else to say to the American Bar Association. It was an ABA conference that she was speaking at, I think. Um, She had plenty that she could have said that would be very relevant, and she chose this. And also, I'm hard-pressed to believe she would have chosen this without first at least alerting SEC Chairman Gary Gensler. This is what I'm talking about. And he... You know, did, did she give him a chance to say, no, don't do that? Talk about climate change, which is another very important issue near and dear to Commissioner Lee's heart. Um, like, why did she decide to talk about this? And did she talk about it because Chairman Gensler wants to get the conversation rolling in advance of rulemaking we might see in later this year or early next year? I don't know. But it would be a very odd choice to talk about this, of all things, unless she wanted to do something with this subject. So that's another big question I have in my head. So, and you articulated that question quite well in the blog post, Matt. And uh, so I came down to maybe three different approaches. One, this is, as you said, uh, something that uh, she floated past the chairman. 
they are thinking about it in some form. Second, is this just a trial balloon uh, to see which way the wind is blowing? Uh, or three, yeah. uh, is this an announcement of, you know, portending things to come? I tend to think it's the first one which you've got in your blog, but, you know, it, it might be something else. But the fact that she made this speech uh, with the text of her remarks, obviously in the public record, means something. I'm not quite sure what it means right now, yeah. but it, it means that we need to talk and think about it and hopefully have conversations in our groups and legal groups and the ABA's groups um, to see what could come out of this. I, I agree, too. It certainly is something to be aware that this, whatever this is, I mean, if it's a balloon or, or not, it's up there. We should all look at it because I don't know what's going to come next with this. Well, Matt, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but uh, as you could tell, near and dear to my heart. I'm thinking about it a lot, particularly since I read your post, so I look forward to seeing what next week brings us. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I hope you will check out my latest podcast series on the Compliance Podcast Network. The podcast is called ESG Compliance. And in this podcast series, I take a deep dive into the intersection of ESG and compliance. If you're a compliance professional or you're an ESG aficionado, this will be the podcast for you. It's available on the Compliance Podcast Network beginning February 8th. I hope you'll join Matt and I again next week for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.